Section 17 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, A Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Canada's New Place in the World. Part three. Thus, so far as the Dominions had awakened to the need of greater outlay for defence, they desired to make that outlay as they made all other expenditure, under the direction and control of their own governments. It may be asked, why then did not Canada in the succeeding decade make better progress along this line? The reasons were many. One was the engrossment in the tremendous task of opening up and subduing vast continental wildernesses, a task more costly than outside opinion often realized, a task which rose to such proportions that the per capita burden of taxation on the Canadian became decidedly greater than that borne by the Englishman for navy, army, social reform, and all other expenditure. Then, too, there was the old colonialism, the habits of thought acquired under different conditions, which, by force of momentum, persisted after these conditions had passed away. Though Canada had ceased to be a possession, and was emerging into nationhood, she awoke but slowly to the idea of taking up her own burden of defence. There was the lack of any pressing danger. The British Navy was still unchallenged in its supremacy. Canada had only one near neighbour, and with that neighbour war was fast becoming unthinkable. In fact, the United States was regarded by some as being as much a protection in case of German or Japanese attack as a menace in itself, though doubtless most Canadians, if put to the test, would have refused to accept such patronizing protection as that afforded by the Monroe Doctrine. The day had not yet come, however, when the similar refusal of the South American states to be taken under any eagle's wing, however benevolent, was to lead to the transformation of that relationship into a self-respecting quasi-alliance of Pan-American republics. There was the view strongly advanced by Sir Charles Tupper and others, that if Canada were independent, the United Kingdom would require not a ship the less to protect its worldwide trade. True. And few Canadians saw the equal truth, that in such a case Canada would require many a ship the more. And if it seemed probable, or even as certain as reasoning from the experience of others could make it, that an independent Canada would have been involved in wars of her own, it was also certain, as an actual fact, that through her connection with Britain she had been involved in wars that were not her own. All such ideas and forces not only ran counter to Mr. Chamberlain's new imperialism, but set a stumbling-block in the path of any rapid progress in defence upon national lines. The unwillingness of the British authorities to sanction Dominion fleets equally blocked progress along the most promising path. As to commercial relations, 
Mr. Chamberlain stated that his ideal was free trade within the empire, presumably with a common customs tariff against all foreign countries. This proposal met with no support. None of the colonies was prepared to open its markets to the manufacturers of the United Kingdom. For the present, protection was their universal policy. It was recommended, however, that those colonies which had not done so should follow Canada's example in giving a preference to British goods, and that the United Kingdom should in turn grant a preference to the colonies by exemption from or reduction of duties then or thereafter imposed. Mr. Chamberlain belittled the value of the preference already given by Canada. The Canadian ministers had no difficulty in showing the unfairness of his conclusion. The preference, which had been increased to thirty-three and a third per cent, and made to apply specifically to Great Britain, and to such other parts of the empire as would reciprocate, had not only arrested the previous steady decline in imports from Great Britain, but had led to a substantial growth in these imports. Canada would agree, however, to go further, and grant some increased preference, if Britain would reciprocate. These proposals for reciprocal preference turned upon the fact that, as a war revenue measure, the British government had recently imposed a duty of a shilling a quarter upon wheat. A few months later the tax was abolished, and reciprocal preference again became merely an academic topic. Canada, still leading the way in the matter of commercial relations, secured the passing of a resolution favoring cheap postage rates on newspapers and periodicals between different parts of the empire. Already in 1898 Canada had lowered the rates on letters to any part of the empire from five to two cents per half ounce, and her example had been widely followed. For the much cry there was little wool, Neither in trade nor in political relations had Mr. Chamberlain's proposals received any encouragement, and in defense matters only small and precarious advance had been made toward centralization. Mr. Chamberlain did not conceal his disappointment. In Sir Wilfrid Laurier he had met a man of equally strong purposes and beliefs, equally adroit in argument, and much better informed than himself in the lessons of the empire's past and in the public opinion overseas on questions of the day. He was plainly inclined to attribute the policy of the Canadian Prime Minister to his French descent. Divining this, Sir Wilfrid suggested that he should invite the other Canadian ministers to a private conference. Mr. Chamberlain accepted the suggestion with alacrity. A dinner was arranged, and hours of discussion followed. To his surprise, Mr. Chamberlain soon found that the four responsible Canadian ministers of the Crown, all of British stock, two of Nova Scotia and two of Ontario, took precisely the same stand that their French-Canadian leader had maintained. They were as loyal to the King as any son of England, and were all determined to retain Canada's connection with the Empire. But, as Canadians first, they believed, as did Mr. Chamberlain himself, that the Empire, like charity, began at home. 
the outcome was that the colonial secretary perceived the hopelessness of endeavor along the lines of political or military centralization and henceforth concentrated upon commerce the chamberlain policy of imperial preferential trade which eventually took shape as a campaign for protection was a direct result of the conference of 1902 it is not without interest to note that the policy of the canadian prime minister as to political and defence relations was not once called in question by the leader of the opposition when parliament next met sir wilfrid laurier had faithfully voiced the prevailing will of the people of canada whether they willed aright or erringly we must now turn to see what relations existed during these years between Canada and the neighboring land which Canadians knew so well. In 1896, when the Liberal government took office, there still remained the disputes which had long made difficult friendly intercourse with this neighbor, and as yet there seemed few grounds for hope that they could be discussed in an amicable temper. In the same year the Republicans came again to power, and presently their new tariff out mckinley to the mckinley act of eighteen ninety raising the duties which the democrats had lowered to a higher level than formerly little had yet occurred to change the provincial bumptiousness of the american attitude toward other nations though there had been a reaction in the country from president cleveland's fulminations of eighteen ninety five on the venezuelan question or to arouse towards great britain or canada the deeper feelings of friendship which common tongue and common blood should have inspired moreover the special difficulty that faces all negotiations with the united states the division of power between president and congress remained in full intensity for president mckinley made the scrupulous observance of the constitutional limits of his authority the first article of his political creed in canada a still rankling antagonism bred of the venezuelan episode made the situation all the worse yet the many issues outstanding between the two countries made negotiation imperative a joint high commission was appointed which opened its sessions at quebec in august eighteen ninety eight lord herschel representing the united kingdom acted as chairman sir wilfrid laurier sir richard cartwright sir lewis davies and john charlton represented canada sir james winter sat for newfoundland and senator fairbanks senator gray congressman dingley general foster mr casson and mr coolidge for the united states the commission sat at quebec until october and adjourned to meet at washington in november there it continued its sessions and approached a solution of most of the difficulties it seemed possible to give permanence to the existing unstable arrangements for shipping goods through in bond to abolish the unneighborly alien labor laws to provide that canadian sealers should give up their rights in the bering sea for a monetary payment and to arrange for a measure of reciprocity in natural products and in a limited list of manufactures but the question of the alaskan boundary proved insoluble and the commission broke up in february eighteen ninety nine 
step by step the long and often uncertain border between canada and the united states proper had been defined and accepted only the boundary between canada and alaska remained in dispute there was a difference of opinion as to the meaning of certain words in the treaty of eighteen twenty five which defined or purported to define the boundary between british and russian america on the pacific that treaty gave russia a panhandle strip of coast halfway down what is now british columbia and when the united states bought alaska in eighteen sixty seven the purchase of course included this strip of coast as british columbia grew the disadvantage of this barrier became seriously felt and repeated attempts were made to have the boundary defined and if possible a port awarded to canada the discovery of gold in the klondike in eighteen ninety six made this all the more urgent the treaty of eighteen twenty five provided that north of portland channel the boundary should follow the summit of the mountains parallel to the coast and where these mountains proved to be more than ten marine leagues from the coast the line was to be drawn parallel to the windings of the coast at ten leagues distance canada contended for an interpretation of this wording which would give her a harbor at the head of one of the fjords which ran far inland while the united states following the usual international doctrine that a disadvantage to your neighbor must be an advantage to yourself insisted that its spite fence should be as high and as gateless as possible the main point of difference between the two countries was as to the way of settling the dispute the united states proposed a commission of three representatives from each side given a desire for fair dealing such a commission is perhaps the most satisfactory at least for a permanent body as the experience of the waterways commission has since shown but for a temporary purpose and in the spirit which then existed the canadian negotiators knew too well that such a board could reach a decision only by the weakening of one of the british members they urged therefore that a board of three arbitrators should be appointed one of them an international jurist of repute who should act as umpire this was the course which the united states had insisted upon in the case of venezuela but what was sauce for the venezuelan goose was not sauce for the alaskan gander the united states asserted that the canadian case had been trumped up in view of the klondike discoveries and would not accept any medium of settlement which did not make it certain beforehand that right or wrong the claim of canada would be rejected the deadlock on this issue proved hopeless and the commission's labors ended without definite result upon any point for the time yet the months of conference had done good in giving the statesmen of each country a better idea of the views and problems of the other and had contributed not a little to the final solution or the final forgetting that the problems existed later during mr now lord bryce's term of office as ambassador at washington most of the provisional arrangements agreed upon were taken up and embodied in separate agreements accepted by both countries when the new era of neighborliness dawned a few years later some of the difficulties which had long loomed large and boding 
ceased to have any more importance than the yard or two of land once in dispute between farmers who have since realized the folly of line-fence lawsuits after the adjournment of the joint high commission in eighteen ninety nine the two countries agreed upon a temporary alaskan boundary line for purposes of administration and it was not until early in nineteen o three that a treaty for the settlement of the dispute was arranged between great britain and the united states and accepted by canada by this treaty the american proposal of a commission of three members from each side was adopted the canadian government agreed to this plan with the greatest reluctance urging to the last that arbitration with an outside umpire was preferable seemingly however fairness was secured by a clause in the treaty which provided that the members should be impartial jurists of repute who shall consider judicially the questions submitted to them and each of whom shall first subscribe an oath that he will impartially consider the arguments and evidence submitted to the tribunal and will decide thereupon according to his true judgment further the united states now agreed to abandon its former position that in any case territory then settled by americans should not be given up that the united states risked nothing by withdrawing this safeguard became clear when the american commissioners were named elihu root a member of president roosevelt's cabinet which had declined to make any concession senator lodge who had only a few months before declared the canadian contention a manufactured and baseless claim and senator turner from washington the state which was eager to retain a monopoly of the klondike trade undoubtedly these were able men but not impartial jurists in the words of an american newspaper the chances of convincing them of the rightfulness of canada's claim are about the same as the prospect of a thaw in hades the dominion government at once protested against these appointments the british government expressed surprise but held that it would be useless to protest and suggested that it was best to follow this example and appoint british representatives of a similar type canada however declined the suggestion and carried out her part honorably by nominating as arbitrators to sit with the lord chief justice of england lord alverstone mr justice armour of the canadian supreme court and sir louis jette formerly a judge of the superior court of quebec later on the death of mr justice armour mr now sir allen aylesworth k c was appointed in his place the case was admirably presented by both sides and all the evidence clearly marshalled late in october the decision of the tribunal was announced a majority consisting of lord alverston and the three american members had declared substantially in favor of the united states sir louis jette and mr aylesworth declined to sign the award and declared it in part a grotesque travesty of justice in canada the decision met with a storm of disapproval which was much misunderstood abroad in great britain and still more in the united states it was not the petulant outburst of a disappointed litigant canada would have acquiesced without murmur if satisfied that her claims had been disproved on judicial grounds 
but of this essential point she was not satisfied, and the feeling ran that once more Canadian interests had been sacrificed on the altar of American friendship. The deep underlying anti-American prejudice now ran counter to pro-British sentiment, rather than, as usual, in the same direction. Had Mr. Aylesworth, on his return, given a lead, a formidable movement for separation from Great Britain would undoubtedly have resulted. But, while repeating strongly, in a speech before the Toronto Canadian Club, his criticism of the award, and making it clear that the trouble lay in Lord Alverston's idea that somehow he was intended to act as umpire between Canada and the United States, Mr. Aylesworth concluded, by urging the value to Canada of the British connection, and the sober second thought of the country echoed his eloquent exhortation. While Canada had shown unmistakably at the Colonial Conference that the Chamberlain imperialists would have to reckon with the strong and rising tide of national feeling, she showed now that, strong as was this tide, it was destined to find its scope and outlet within the bounds of the empire. Now imperial sentiment, now national aspirations, might be uppermost. But consciously or unconsciously, the great mass of Canadians held to an idea that embraced and reconciled both, the conception of the empire as a free but indissoluble league of equal nation-states. When the terms of the treaty were first announced, Mr. Borden declared that it should have been made subject to ratification by the Canadian Parliament. After the award, Sir Wilfrid Laurier went further, contending that the lesson was that Canada should have independent treaty-making power. It is important, he said, that we should ask the British Parliament for more extensive powers, so that if ever we have to deal with matters of a similar nature again, we shall deal with them in our own way, in our own fashion, according to the best light we have. The demand was not pressed. The change desired, at least in respect to the United States, did come, in fact, a few years later, though, as usual in British countries, much of the old forms remained. End of section 17